things aren't static. Everybody adapts and evolves. It's not that the US has remained static and everybody else has adapted around us. It's that we have been so focused on dealing with terrorist challenges and the snakes that the dragons have been able to adapt while we've been aware of their adaptation, but just pinned down doing other stuff. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast is with David Kilcullen, an old friend of ASP's and one of the leading thinkers on 21st century warfare. He's got a new book out, The Dragons and the Snakes, How the Rest Learned to Fight the West. The title is based around testimony that then CIA director Jim Woolsey gave in the early 1990s, saying how the West had slayed a dragon the USSR, but that the world looked like it was going to be full of all these different sort of snakes, terrorists and the like. The result, 20 years after that now, is that we have a world where the snakes have adapted and the dragons are back. Russia and China are engaged in great power competition with the United States and its allies. Meanwhile, the snakes, terrorist groups and the like, have become effective in figuring out ways to fight the United States. We had a good, long conversation. I think it's important, though, to kind of get towards the end that there's still ways that the U.S. and its allies can win and can shape the geopolitics of the 21st century. I think it comes down to three key things. First, we win when we stand up for our values. Second, we win with our technological advantages. And third, probably most importantly, we win best when we don't actually fight wars. Diplomacy, trade, and engagement are far more powerful tools in the 21st century than tanks, bombs, or battleships. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and you can find more on our website at americansecurityproject.org. David Kilcullen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Really great to be with you, and I, and I really loved your new book, The Dragons and the Snakes. Why don't we just start off right there? Can you explain the concept of the dragons, the snakes, who are the dragons of the world, who are the snakes, and we'll just go from there. Yeah, so I should say up front that it isn't my metaphor. I actually borrowed it with permission from Jim Woolsey, who was President Clinton's first CIA director. And when he was going up for his confirmation hearing in front of the Senate in February of 1993, he said, we've slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union, which had collapsed about 15 months before. But now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes. And in many ways, the dragon was easier to keep track of. And you can actually go onto the Senate Intelligence Committee website and read his full testimony. And it's about 400 pages long, but he gets into great detail in a very prescient way about what he sees as the likely threat environment of the 1990s after the end of the Cold War. And by dragons, he means, and I mean, peer competitors or near peer competitors. At that time in the early 90s, the only one really was the Soviet Union. But now, as I have framed it, I look at both China and Russia as kind of resurgent dragons on 
the global security stage. Mm-hmm. But Woolsey really emphasizes in his testimony the threat from weak states, failing states, and non-state actors. And that's what I mean and he means by, by snakes. And so the book is really about, okay, that was going on nearly 30 years ago when Woolsey gave that testimony. And for about a decade, we very much lived in what you might call a Woolsey and security environment where we worried about the snakes. But today the dragons are back and they are different. They've actually been watching and learning from the snakes. And at the same time, there's been this massive expansion in the degree of technical precision and connectivity and lethality that's available to non-state actors. So now we deal with both dragons and snakes at the same time and in many of the same places. And whereas the dragons have learned to fight like snakes, the snakes have gained many of the capabilities that you used to have to be a dragon to acquire. So it's a much more complicated and and I would argue more dangerous security environment than we faced really at any time since the end of the Cold War. Right. And and that, of course, is often highlighted as, as a turning point, the early 1990s, late 1980s. And I think you're right to say that it's prescient of Woolsey to have pointed out this world full of snakes in 1993 was very much ahead of the game of thinking of that geopolitical world. But there's also another kind of key turning point that you talk about that the, the dragons and the snakes both learned a lot from. And that was the Gulf War of 1991. Mm-hmm. which in your telling was kind of the apotheosis of the Western way of war, right? Networked, massive overpowering force, the ability to wipe out a near-peer competitor on a battlefield. People forget about it now, but the Iraqi army under Saddam Hussein was seen as very capable and very strong. And the idea that that army could be wiped out was it was a wake-up call to the rest of the world the snakes and the dragons of the world or the developing dragons you you talk about how the russians but especially the chinese kind of looked at this and saw this maybe it would be helpful to kind of outline what you say is is the western way of war the american way of war that we saw then yeah that's a great point and you're exactly right andrew i mean i was a lieutenant of infantry in august of 1990 when when iraq invaded kuwait and at that point the iraqi military was the largest and regarded as the most capable in the entire middle east and of course it had just defeated the iranians in a very long drawn out conflict of the Iran-Iraq war in the in the 1980s. And this is one reason why it was such a shock for the Chinese, yeah. because China had been training, equipping and advising the Iranians during that war. They had just seen their protege defeated by Saddam. And then they watched Saddam himself get crushed in less than 100 hours in yeah. January, February of 1991. And it was just a massive wake up call, which made them recognize how quite how far behind the United States, but the broader West uh, they were. And yeah, I should say that in using that term, the Western way of war, I had to actually put a note in the book to say, I'm not talking about the Anglosphere and NATO right. here. I'm talking about a particular way of fighting. It's not a, right. not a cultural statement per se. And I would characterize it as a particular, very narrowly defined form of conventional warfare that relies on 
rapid battlefield maneuver by armored forces supported by tactical air, but also strategic air capability Mm -hmm. with the entire thing knit together using high precision, high tech communications intensive systems, which we sometimes have described as a, a system of systems. That essentially means that if you go up against the Americans or anyone who fights like the Americans in the open, conventionally arrayed, uh, the way that Saddam did in 1991, the outcome is going to be some variant of the highway of death uh, when in Al Jafra, when the US Air Force essentially killed an unknown number of Iraqis and destroyed about a thousand Iraqi vehicles in less than two hours toward the end of the Gulf War. And of course, the most recent bunch of idiots to attempt that again and learn the same lesson was Islamic State in a conventional mode. And what they have done, of course, is to react the same way everybody else did, which is to drop back down into guerrilla, unconventional and hybrid warfare in a way that prevents Western style conventional warfare from coming to bear on them. Yeah, exactly. So it's like total dominance of the air and then the ability to direct massive amounts of power onto concentrated forces. So yeah. the evolutions that we've saw as you know throughout the the 2000s and then the 2010s and especially throughout the insurgency in in Iraq and Afghanistan was avoid those concentration of forces, try to avoid the ability to get bombed by the air and to be able to to hide within the population, which of course is a, a classic guerrilla tactic. You know, Mao talks about it, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But well, but what else did the yeah. did the snakes learn as they fought? Of course, the snakes being terrorist groups. Al-Qaeda, but then also the various insurgent groups in, in Iraq. What else did they learn as they fought the Western way of war? How, how did they learn to adapt to it? Yeah, so I talk about this as a fitness landscape that is an environment with a major predator in it. In other words, the United States and the Western Alliance, which punished some kinds of behavior and rewarded others. And I have a chapter in the book where I get, where I get into some detail on mm-hmm the sort of evolutionary theory and theories of military adaptation that underpin that. But in essence, adversaries of all kinds learn that, yes, the Western way of war will crush you in a second if you organize in the way we just talked about, but it has a number of exploitable weaknesses. So they realize that they're dealing with an adversary that is dominant in the air, but is also very heavily constrained by rules of engagement, law of armed conflict, and increasingly self-imposed caveats and limitations so that if you blend in with the population, if you hide in complex terrain, if you get close to civilian targets, you can survive a Western-style air campaign. They also realized that they were dealing with an adversary in the West that had almost unprecedented ability to collect electronic communications of all kinds. And I talk about this in the book, how at the end of the Cold War, there was just a massive expansion in collection capability of Western intelligence. But at the same time, or actually just slightly after that, around the year 2000, we also saw just a massive expansion and explosion in connectivity. And I've written about this in other books, but really starting around the year 2000, the volume of electronic traffic that was out there that would need to be collected by a Western intelligence service expanded by orders of magnitude. So what that meant was for adversaries that you will be detected by Western sensors, mm-hmm. but no human analyst may ever actually read your traffic or get to analyze what you're doing as long as you move quickly and you keep communications low and only use them when you need to. And you adopt techniques like modularization, 
operating in small semi-autonomous groups, minimizing communication, uh, swarming tactics that don't require detailed orders. All those sorts of things will have a protective effect against this kind of surveillance uh, capability. And then the other big lesson that people learned was that Western air capability was extremely powerful, mm-hmm. but Western ground forces were increasingly overstretched by just the size of the areas where they were operating right. and the kinds of things they were being asked to do. And I think it's important to note that the, the Woolseyan security environment, the environment that Jim Woolsey describes in 1993, lasted about a decade. And the end of it wasn't 9-11. It was the invasion of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Because if the 1991 Gulf War showed everybody how not to fight us, the 2003 and onward occupation of Iraq showed everybody, oh, actually, there is a way that you can operate that will make it incredibly difficult for the Americans to deal with you. And you can be very survivable and arguably successful if you work in in that way. Stealthy, blending with the population, disorganized in a particular way that makes it hard for us to roll you up, and then focusing on soft targets. And I think we've seen successful adaptation from the snakes, what I I call Woolsey's snakes in one of the one of the chapters. Not just jihadist groups, but all yeah. groups have sort of moved in that direction, including states, actually, in terms of the way they are. And importantly, though, there was this thought after the Gulf War, and especially you know during the Balk- Balkan campaigns and stuff, that our adversaries would say, "Oh, you know, the Americans have great technology, but they're afraid to fight. They're afraid to get into the hand-to-hand combat." And they're so afraid of taking casualties that you can take advantage of that. And that, of course, was not borne out in Iraq. The ability of the American soldiers, Marines, sailors, you know, fighters to actually go in and fight and clear and hold areas did develop significantly during that time. And, and especially kind of the, the counterinsurgency revolution and sort of stuff, which you were obviously were involved in. to how the U.S. military was adapting to fight in these situations as well. It was learning that it's not just about killing the enemy. It's also about trying to the old hearts and minds, which we talked about 50 years ago, sort Mm -hmm. of stuff that that war is is not just adversary to adversary. It's also about winning the broader context as well. Yeah. In the 1990s, both Americans and their allies, on the one hand, and adversaries of the West, on the other hand, believed this belief, which, as you rightly pointed out, turned out to be wrong, was that sort of the technological development or dominance of the West would end warfare as it had existed. So Mm -hmm. there was a sort of cozy notion in the West that, well, any rational uh, adversary is not going to fight us now because we're just so dominant militarily. But of course, we were dominant in extremely narrowly defined form of warfare. And as you just described, people went outside of the bounds of our dominance as as a way to fight us. But the other thing that adversaries got wrong was to think that Americans would lose their stomach to fight and that the casualty aversion of the American public would translate into unwillingness of the the US in particular to support uh, sustained combat. That turned out to be a tragic error on the part of the Iraqis, but also the Taliban uh, and Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. So I think that's certainly been proven to be false. It's worth pointing out, though, that one of the the dragons who spent a lot of time focusing on this idea of American reliance on technology and casualty aversion was China. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese spent a lot of time in the 1990s watching very closely how the U.S. was operating in those peacekeeping campaigns 
and then analyzing US performance and coming up with this style of warfare that I call unrestricted warfare following the book of the same title by Chao Liang and Wang Chung Sui, two Chinese mm -hmm. uh, senior colonels who basically point to casualty aversion as a critical US weakness. Of course, we look at the environment now it's arguably more of a weakness for China than it is for the US. Right. But it just shows you that things aren't static. Everybody adapts and evolves. It's not that the US has remained static and everybody else has adapted around us. It's that we have been so focused on dealing with terrorist challenges and the snakes that the dragons have been able to adapt while we've been aware of their adaptation, but just pinned down doing other stuff. Well, and I think that that's a perfect segue into this bigger question of the dragons. Of course, here in Washington and the Pentagon, everybody talks GPC, great power competition. It's back ever since, you know, it, it was written in the national defense strategy. You know, we are back to great power competition. Sometimes you almost hear it from people in the security sphere with like a... Thank God, we're back to something we know. Great power competition. You know, we can go back to dealing with state-to-state -state actors and that sort of stuff. Of course, it's you're right that they're not static either. And they're changing tactics and changing their ideas of warfare. You talked a little bit about China, but but Russia in in a lot of respects is a really interesting actor here because they, they collapsed so completely as a military power other than their nuclear weapons deterrent. They basically completely collapse as a, as a power to, be, to go out and fight conventional warfare. And, and then it was built back up through a lot of reforms that Putin and his leadership instituted. It'd be interesting to, to hear what, how that came about and, and what they've learned. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I should say one of the unfavorable reviews of the book accused me of being pro-Russian, and I, which made me laugh. I don't think any Russian reading my Russia chapter would agree with that. <laughs> um, and certainly uh, RT television were mightily offended by the book. Um, <laughs> But what I do say in the book is that Vladimir Putin and the leadership of the Russian military in particular have played a very weak hand extremely well. You called him a genius in the book. Yeah, he's a genius. I mean, you know, which is not meant to be a compliment, right? right. I mean, you can decide he's an evil genius or you can decide he's just a genius. But he is, you know, he has certainly transformed the situation in Russia. And I mentioned that the Chinese learned a lot from the 1991 Gulf War. As you point out, the Russians didn't really because they were in the middle of collapsing. And the, I, I go through in some detail exactly how bad it got for the Russian military in the 1990s. But one of the things that happened during the 1990s was that they became much better at operating in urban environments against non-state actors in former Soviet territories, which was not what the Soviet military was. It was a very conventional actor right. that was a large military that was structured for mass mobilization to fight NATO. Mm -hmm. And they found that that was exactly the opposite of what they needed to be in the 1990s. And a lot of sort of informal and low level adaptation was going on through the 1990s. And they showed themselves to be a very adept learning organization in the wars in Chechnya and Dagestan and against separatists and others in, in Russian territory in the 1990s. But then in the 2000s, in a series of campaigns, but probably most notably the, the war in Georgia in mm -hmm. 2008, they began to recover their conventional warfighting capability and a series of reforms known as the new look reforms or the Sujukov reforms 
that happened after Georgia really addressed many of the structural weaknesses that the Russians had experienced in the 1990s. It's also worth pointing out that from 2000 until about 2010, Russia had rapidly growing oil revenues and had the money to actually finance military modernization in a way that it just never had at all during the, the 1990s. I think there's still a view by some people who haven't perhaps paid much attention lately that Russia's a basket case, that its population is declining, that everybody's drunk all day and people are dying in their 40s and so on. That was always a bit of a caricature, even at the depths of the collapse in the 1990s. But today, it's very much a, a comforting myth about the Russian military. They are much more capable than people generally give them credit for in the West. In part, that's because we gave them a lot of help. It's worth remembering that during the Obama administration, and sorry, I mean that as a timing statement rather than any political statement, but sure. we attempted to reset the relationship with the Russians. Of course, the Trump administration tried to do exactly the same thing. Yeah. And the Russians got a lot of help. Russia has a thing called KSO, which is their Special Operations Command, which looks a lot like US Special Operations Command. Mm -hmm. something they've never had. It was founded in 2013 as a result of assistance from the US military and helping them figure out how to modernize their special operations. That organization is now operating in Syria and Africa and a bunch of other places against US interests. And it's worth just remembering that for a very long time, we had this idea that Russia would become a normal country. Right. And by normal, what we meant was it would sort of accept permanent second-class status in a US-dominated international world order. And of course, the Russians had never had any intention of doing that. And nor would any self-respecting Russian statesman, whatever their politics, be expected to do that. What they've done since really 2013, 2014. And we see this in Crimea, in the Donbass, in Syria, in the, the Baltic states and a number of other places is they've evolved a new form of warfare where they've learned creatively from non-state actors how to stay below the radar to make it hard for us to respond and to deal with them. They've also really perfected a very sophisticated form of political warfare, which obviously has been targeted against the US, but not only mm -hmm. against the US. And all of that goes along with conventional military modernization. So they're back as a dragon, but it's a dragon that's learned to fight like a snake. Right. And it's very different. The, you call it liminal warfare. It's still, like you say, it's like a snake because they're not ready and they don't want to have an overt conflict with any anyone in the West. And actually, I think an important part of that too is if there is any sort of out-and-out -out conflict between U.S. forces and Russian for forces or NATO forces and Russian forces, then it very quickly can move into something that involves nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And nobody is suicidal enough to think about that. So it does change the tactical ideas of what they can do and what you want to do. So the idea is just give enough plausible deniability that, oh, this is us, that then they create facts on the ground. And of course, we saw this most in Crimea, right? Mm -hmm. That nobody knew what was going on. There was not enough news. I'm sure there was some some intelligence gathering going on, but they, there was not enough open, the, oh my gosh, you know, the Russians have taken Crimea and they have taken Crimea before they, there was the ability to organize any sort of opposition to it. So they create right. facts on the ground and then that sort of changes it before their ability, before the ability of the Western opponents to do anything about it. And then it, it does raise the question of, well, what would 
we do? What would the Western opponents do uh, that we haven't done, which is massive sanctions against them, remove them from, from all this other stuff? We're not going to send a couple of B-2 bombers over their logistical lines into Crimea. So it's it, they're, they're kind of using this restraint that we have to have about striking Russian forces against us as well. Hmm. So, yeah, this is a great point. The, the Russian style of operating, and I had to apologize in the book for coming up with a new term of liminal warfare. Another, another new term for warfare. Yeah, another new term. I, I just only because the word hybrid has, has come to mean so many different things. Now. Right, right. Um, so essentially the, the goal here is recognizing that you can no longer be covert or even clandestine in an environment that's so full of, you know, social media and smartphones and internet connectivity and so on. The Russians are not trying to do that. They're trying to be ambiguous rather than covert. And what they're essentially trying to do is what I call in the book, decisive shaping, achieving the vast majority of their objectives before the adversary even right. realizes anything's happening. So right. that by the time an operation is compromised, it's really too late for the adversary to do anything about it. And then once they are sprung, if you like, once they're detected, they move rapidly. They, they call it escalating to de-escalate, which is a term that was debatable when it was applied originally to Russian nuclear strategy, mm -hmm. but actually describes pretty well how the Russians operate in this type of uh, operation where they move very quickly at the beginning of a campaign to seize key objectives. And then they quickly segue to political warfare approach, which tries to obfuscate and deny and make ambiguous what just happened so that they can then consolidate using diplomatic means or economic means, gains that they achieve militarily without triggering a Western military response. Right. And that's why political warfare is such an important part of the process, because it's actually about delaying and dividing and disrupting decision-making processes on our side. They know that they can't fool Western senses. They know that US intelligence analysts are going to figure out what's going on very quickly. What they're trying to do is make it difficult for a US president or for the NATO decision makers or a group of allies to agree and come to a consensus on how to react. And if they can successfully obfuscate that for, say, 72 hours or a week, that's more and more time to consolidate on the ground so that by the time we do decide how to react, it's kind of too late and they're consolidated and, and, and very difficult for, them, for us to move them away. This happened in Crimea. Uh, it happened in Syria as well. Yeah. To me, it almost seems like the schoolyard bully or something that takes your lunch money and then says, what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. You know, and the teacher's or just, looking on. Or just blatantly denies that they took your lunch money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and you know that they took your lunch money, and he can and he keeps saying, "So what? You know, what are you going right. to do about it? I didn't take it. He took it. He took right. it. And it doesn't matter what the truth is. He's going to be trying to deny, obfuscate, and use your own sophisticated intelligence and also sophisticated kind of social media networks against you so that it, it's it's impossible for you to actually come up with a, a coherent response. Now, it, it, we shouldn't we shouldn't believe that this has been cost free for the Russians. Uh, no, absolutely not. No. Uh, yeah. I mean, they they had suffered very significant political exclusion, economic sanctions. They also, of course, have lost several hundred people killed in yes. uh, Syria and more than that in Ukraine. And they've had some just major screw ups, like, for example, the shooting down of a Malaysian civilian airliner. And yeah, OK, it's deniable, but I don't think anybody believes the denial. And as a consequence, no. um, 
it has real negative consequences for Russia. But I think the what we're seeing here is an adaptive response to a particular way that we operate. I mean, we learned in the Korean War when the US Secretary of State seems to have accidentally given the Russians and the Chinese the go-ahead by leaving South Korea off a list of key areas. You know, we learned the wrong lesson, I think, which is we need to have very, very clear red lines and we need to state those red lines and then stick to them because we haven't always stuck to them as in the case of Syria. But I think the lesson out of Crimea is even having and stating those red lines basically gives an adversary like the Russians the ability to figure out exactly how far they can walk up to the line and just sort of put a toehold across it before we're going to respond. And it makes us predictable in a way that this style of warfare is particularly good at exploiting. It's a strategy actually that is often termed when you're talking about the Chinese and what they did in the South China Sea, kind of the the salami slice tactics that you keep doing a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And (coughs) it's never clear when you get get to the line or if they've crossed the line, but then you look back two years later and suddenly there's unsensible so aircraft this, carriers across This there. is that. It, it is that in a physical sense. And of course, we can talk China as well. Yeah. But there's an element in the Russian approach which is even more clever and sophisticated, in my view, which is making creating a situation where key decision makers on our side disagree whether there even is a salami and whether what we're seeing in, in the Intel picture is real or not. And to achieve that, you don't have to convince everyone in America that Russia's in the right. That would be an American way of going about this kind of thing. What you have to do is create sort of an echo chamber or different non-overlapping Venn diagram of a sort of different debatable reality. Um, And of course, we see that in our own politics now where half the country believes there's an article of faith that President Trump is a Russian asset. And the other half believes that that's completely fake news made up and there was never any Russian interference. Both those statements are wrong. And in fact, the Russian approach here has not been about convincing anyone of either of those. It's been about creating the dissension in such a way that we can't organize ourselves to respond effectively. And if you talk to any Ukrainian or any Finn or anyone that works in the Baltic states or Scandinavia, these are countries that have been subject to this kind of political maneuvering or political engineering, as the Russians call it, for decades. And it's not a new thing. It's just new in our politics. I think that's that's a really important point that maybe the key adaptation that they've done that the Russians have done is about not anything military but this this idea of setting up the whole battle space the whole information space and really just flooding the zone with shit is one of the things that yeah. they say right you know right. it's just completely flooding the zone with bs of of all sorts yeah well i th- i think what we're seeing here is a form of warfare that's organized along a timeline to integrate economic, political, military, diplomatic, informational warfare. And the timeline is defined by our decision-making processes. So when we say political warfare, what the Russians mean by that is a very specific attempt to disrupt and to exploit the way we make political decisions, because a lot of these response decisions are not made by the military, they're made by political leaders. And I think that's That's the key difference between political warfare on the one hand and just sort of basic propaganda or information warfare on the other. Yeah. I, w- I want to talk a little bit more about China here before mm. we, we wrap up, because I think, and and reading your book, I, I think you probably agree with me. I, I think that, that the US and China, that China is the growing competitor. I don't want to call them opponent necessarily, enemy, but how the US and China figure out their relationship and how that evolves will be probably one of the main stories of the 21st century. 
how we deal with this, how, you know, to deal with the rising power and Thucydides trap, all that sort of stuff is probably the key of whether we'll have a prosperous and growing 21st century or one that devolves into conflict. So the Chinese, of course, have, have invested heavily in a, a military that is very much thinking about the U.S. Navy and the ability of the Navy to, to deal with Chinese threats and, and stuff in, in, the, in the seas off of China. Maybe talk a little bit about the technology, the, the missile technology and stuff that yeah. they've gone into as, as kind of an asymmetric threat to our, what would what, you call them, the, the flying golden... Mountains. The, the, the Chinese theorists who I spoke about earlier critiqued the U.S. way of warfare. One point they described the U.S. stealth bomber as more expensive than a flying mountain of gold. Right. At another point in their book, they talk about the U.S. way of warfare as shooting birds with golden bullets. Um, <laughs> and they, they make a number of critiques, and it's worth yeah. rehashing a couple of those. One is that the U.S. is casualty averse, which we've talked about before. Another is that this form of warfare is so expensive that only the Americans could have come up with it, that it's just not effective in a cost sense to approach warfare in such an exorbitantly expensive fashion. Mm -hmm. um, and then another key point they make is that the US tries to set the rules for everybody else, but it only succeeds if it follows its own rules. And if it stops following its own rules, it will, it will lose credibility and then won't be able to operate. When written in 1999 were, were valid points. Um, I, I would just make what I think is a bigger macro comment, which is, in my view, the most important thing about the 21st century, and I agree with you, is going to be the competition between China and the US for global primacy. Yeah. But I would also say that the most important development that's happened anywhere on the planet in geopolitical terms since about the middle of the 15th century is the emergence of China as a global maritime power. You know, at no time since the 15th century has China ever had a blue water navy capable of projecting power all around the planet. Mm -hmm. Now we have the Chinese in the Arctic and the Antarctic. Yeah. We have them operating off of Latin America. They have a base in Africa. They own every major port in Europe. They have bases under construction in Sri Lanka and Cambodia and Pakistan. They own the port of Darwin, which is a major US Marine Corps port in Northern Australia. They are able to project power with a fleet that is bigger than the US Navy and has some of the most advanced uh, surface combatants on the planet and the fastest growing submarine fleet in the world by far. And that's a development that's all happened in the last 10 to 15 years. It's an right. incredibly rapid transformation. In the late 1990s, China had no aircraft carriers. In the middle 2000s, it had one secondhand Ukrainian aircraft carrier rechristened the Liaoning, which had all kinds of technical problems. Today, the Chinese have two aircraft carriers in the water, two more under construction, missile submarines, attack subs, cruisers, destroyers, extraordinarily capable fleet. But more importantly, as you mentioned, they've invented an entire new class of weapons, the anti-ship ballistic missile, right. which in its latest version, the DF-26, can knock out a US carrier at about 2,500 nautical miles on the move at sea. And if you plot that from the Chinese coast, it's basically out towards Guam and almost Hawaii. So obvious point, it is a lot quicker and cheaper to build anti-ship ballistic missiles than it is... Right to build aircraft carriers. So it begs the question, why are the Chinese also building aircraft carriers? Right. I think it's because they do want to have the dominant naval power on the planet by the middle of the century. 
they do want to compete with the US for global primacy in a way that the Russians don't. And they plan to do that using a combination strategy, partly conventional, partly competing in terms of naval power, fifth generation aircraft, space capability, and land power, but also through a whole series of asymmetric means, which they described as unrestricted warfare. I call it conceptual envelopment, um, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but cyber capability, financial capability, bioweapons, the ability to manipulate global supply chains and manufacturing standards, what some people call a tech war with the US. These are all things that were highlighted 20 years ago in unrestricted warfare as ways to compete with the United States. Not only as the Russians have done, not, out, not only outside the bubble of US attention, but outside our conceptual definition of warfare to the point where many of the things the Chinese have been doing as part of what they call the three warfares doctrine, we wouldn't even recognize as warfare. And even if we did, it's not clear that the Pentagon would have the primary role in countering. So it's a sort of conceptual envelopment going outside the boundaries of our concept of war to the point where we may not even realize we're at war with the Chinese until it's too late. Yeah. I do wonder about that. And I want to push you a little bit on that because it seems to me that they've done this and you're, you're right, all of the China 2025 strategies and they want, they want to get new technology and, and been highlighted in the, the kind of fight over Huawei, global 5G push, you know, as the US starts to push back on that. But I do wonder <coughs> that by the Chinese so embedding themselves within the global economy as kind of the new workshop of the world, they have created this system where as the main global exporter, their economy is so tied to the United States and to Europe that they have, they've become a stakeholder in stability. And that's kind of one of the, been one of the thoughts within the United States for a long time is, is to make the Chinese a stakeholder. It's okay if they want to have a global naval force. Maybe that means that they'll help out with piracy in off of Aden and, and that sort of stuff. It's okay for another competitor to be out there. We just don't want them to be an enemy. And yeah. let, let's tie them into the global economy and get it so that they need to keep for domestic stability they need to keep their economy humming and people in jobs and, and everything growing. So there are threats within China to sort of this idea of, of warfare everywhere. Yeah. And we should point out that China is not this kind of inscrutable evil genius with a hundred year plan. They're, right. they're pretty opportunistic like we are. Yeah. We should also point out that China isn't a single unified rational actor. There are many different factions and different exactly. groups, although that has it's become much more centralized in the last decade. But I, I think it's, it's just worth noting that, well, actually, I'll pick up your point about China being a stakeholder in stability. You know, every US administration since the Clinton administration has taken very much that same point of view. We want until, that. Until Whether President it's Trump, true right? or not. Yeah. And the Chinese themselves, until quite recently, had this notion of peaceful rise, the idea that China does want to become a global great power, which it arguably is now, and that it, but that doesn't need to be threatening and it doesn't need to be a cause of, of conflict. It, it's just a natural evolution of China back to its, as, as Chinese strategists would argue, back to its natural state of affairs. And Western players were very much on board with that idea for, for much of this century and until recently. I think what's happened is that President Trump in particular has taken a much dimmer view of 
China's role. At the same time, China's policy has changed away from peaceful rise to getting the military and the diplomatic credit for their economic uh, and modernization efforts, starting to throw their weight around a little bit. And so that even before the COVID-19 outbreak, we were already moving into a situation of global great power competition. I would argue that COVID has pushed us into great power conflict. It isn't a hot conflict. It isn't even primarily military, but we're seeing a pretty rapid political and economic decoupling between China and the US. We've seen this growing tech war on the back of a trade war that's been going on for a number of years. And of course, we don't regard tech wars and trade wars as part of military warfare. That's it's a metaphor for us. But actually, in the Chinese model, they do fit into a warfighting strategy. So you can argue that actually, we're talking ourselves into a conflict that neither side necessarily wants, but we may start to find inevitable as the pull toward that continues. And I think what we're seeing here is almost a situation similar to what we had in the early 20th century between a growing, a growing German empire and the dominant British empire yes. of the day, where neither side really wanted war, but at some point, strategists began to regard conflict as inevitable. And once you begin to think of a conflict as inevitable, you stop trying to prevent it and you start trying to structure it in such a way that you can start it on the most favorable possible terms. And I think that's unfortunately where we've gotten to now in the last several months with the Chinese. It it is a dangerous time. I I, I almost think like we're frozen in place as COVID is going on and it'll be really interesting and important to see what happens when everything unfreezes after the election, after COVID lockdowns and and, and, and everything. as we close, I was thinking through this book. It, to me, it was a little bit pessimistic about the future of, of U.S. primacy, primacy leadership in the world. And you did have have a good chapter on a neo-Byzantine st- strategy, which I thought was interesting. But maybe we don't have enough time to go fully into all of that. But I want to end with, I had kind of three ideas for how the West prospers in the 21st century. And maybe maybe just get your reaction to those and what, what you think of that. And first is the idea is that we win when we stand up for our values. There are certain values that the U.S. has, the inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that are attractive to everybody, even if they're not attractive to the Russian governments, the Chinese governments, they're attractive to the Russian people and the Chinese people. And when we stand up for those values, it has this sort of gravitational pull that can do a lot to help us and and help our interests around the world. Second, we win with our technological advantages, which in many cases have been eroded, but there was this idea that we need a third offset strategy at the end of the Obama administration that they were talking about. And I think that's right. You know, still the best technology, the most advanced technology is, is coming out of Silicon Valley and U.S. entrepreneurs and, and that sort of stuff. If we can marry that somehow in a way that is about American leadership. And then third, and I think this is maybe overlooked sometimes, is that we win when we don't fight. The U.S. and, and our allies, things like diplomacy, trade, engagement, these things are actually more powerful tools and get overlooked in the U.S. so much with the, the sheer weight of the Pentagon, you know, the sheer weight of the amount of budget and size that the Pentagon has, that if some of the biggest wins for American national security 
in recent years have, have, have come through diplomacy, whether it's the JCPOA with Iran or the opening to Cuba or arguably the, the UAE opening to, to Israel and, and all that sort of stuff. These are diplomacy. So what do you think of that? What's, what's the future positive outcome for the U.S. and our allies? How, how should we be structuring the next decades? So this is going to be a somewhat controversial point of view. And I should say, you know, I'm an American citizen, but I, I only just got here. Um, and I was <laughs> born in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, that's why I decided to become an American. But I, I think that we have to ask ourselves whether American foreign policy, as it's been practiced toward the rest of the world, since 9-11 and particularly since the invasion of Iraq really puts ourselves forward as we would like to think of ourselves, right? We like to think of ourselves, I think at times as being like the rebel alliance in Star Wars. Unfortunately for a lot of other people in the world, we look like the evil empire. Yes. And the department of defense, as we call it, has unfortunately become, I think, a department of global expeditionary warfighting in the service of armed propagation of our own form of government, which has become eroded at home as a result of that imperial overstretch, as some people have called it. And I think I fully agree with you that the way that we prosper, that we get our mojo back, if you like, is to focus on domestic resilience and pursuing Mm -hmm. our values at home. And many other nations have focused in recent times in confronting the threat from China and Russia on what they call deterrence through resilience, showing that we are strong and capable and unified, that we've got our shit together at home. And unfortunately, many Americans don't believe that of their own government right now. So I think a focus at home on building up that domestic unity and resilience would be a key starting point. That by necessity would translate into a lot fewer military adventures abroad. And I think that would be a good thing for the US yeah. as well as for everybody else. And then the final point, and I, you know, I know that you know, you're not partisan and neither am I, but I find it very interesting that in the last month, President Trump has had three recommendations now for a Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize. A group of Australian lawyers, a Swedish parliamentarian, and a Norwegian leader have all recommended him for the Peace Prize. And one of them, the Norwegians, made the point that President Trump is the first president in 39 years not to start a new war. Now, I don't think that says very much about President Trump, and I'm not pro, pro-Trump. Right. I think it says a hell of a lot about American presidents over the last 40 years, right? And I think if that's all you have to do to be the best uh, peacemaker in the last four decades, then we're doing something wrong, right? I mean, Putin got nominated for a Nobel Prize. This right. year. Absolutely. I'm yeah. not guessing. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, President President Obama was awarded one without actually doing anything. Yeah, he, he didn't. No, I mean, I'm not <laughs> suggesting it's necessarily a, a, a good, but I'm. what I'm saying is, you know, a focus at home, a focus on resilience and recognizing that we win because people like us and people stop liking us when we started invading their countries. You know, I think we need to to really go back to that. And, and again, I remember President, uh, Vice President Biden, I think it was him or it might have been, uh, no, I'm sorry, it was Secretary Kerry uh-huh. saying, look, this Russian in, uh, invasion of Ukraine is absolutely outrageous. In the 21st century, we don't just invade other people's countries and carve people's bits of them off. And everyone was like, uh, what? You know, Iraq, Afghanistan? You know, so I think we've got <laughs> to start following our own, right. our own best selves. Right. And I think we, we have to recognize that America's position of dominance as it existed when Woolsey was testifying, came on the back of many decades of people respecting and 
wanting to be like the United States. And I think everything flows from that. That's if right. people don't want to be like us and don't want what we want, then uh, yeah, we can have the best technology in the world, but it's not going to cut it. I think that's right. I, I think that's, that is a key point to end on. Uh, everybody wants, we want everybody to want to be like us and want to be with us. And perhaps we haven't been as good as that as some of us think we should be. Well, David, where can people find more about the book? So it's, uh, it's published by Oxford University Press in the US. It's on Amazon. We've barely scratched the surface of all the stuff that I get into. In the I know. Book. And I, I hope people get a, an opportunity to, to take a look at it. And yeah, thank you. And I, you know, I've, I've been a big supporter of American Security Project for many years, and we've worked together on yep. projects in the past. And I would just encourage everybody to check out the work that your scholars are doing, um, folks like Ben Hodges and others, really some cutting edge thinking on how to deal with the circumstances that we find ourselves in uh, right now. Well, th thanks for that. Really appreciate it. And we'll put a we'll put a link to your book up on the the show notes page. And I'd encourage everybody to go go take a read of it. It's it's uh, very thought provoking. Awesome. Thanks, Andrew. Well, thanks, David. Great to be with you.